Most people actually have the experience where God has touched them in some type of manner, but they aren't able to maintain that. I see this especially as I travel. I go someplace, a person is just so turned on by the Word, and you go back in six months, and you couldn't tell that God had ever touched their life. It's like they just lost it. And that's not the way that God intended it to be. So we talked a lot about that last night, and we started using Romans chapter 1, verse 21, and this is talking about how people walk away from a revelation of God's existence and of His hatred for sin, how that we are accountable to Him. And it gives four things that we do that diminish or harden ourselves, desensitize ourselves to what God has done in our life. The very first thing it says is that they don't glorify God. And that's what we spent all last night talking about, what it means to glorify God. Basically, that's talking about putting value, worth on it, the word esteem. The word glorify is defined by the word esteem, and the word esteem means to value our prize. And so it's talking about the value that you place on the things that God does. And the truth is, most of us don't value the things of God properly. When we begin to value the opinion of others, the experiences of others, when we value what we see more than what God's Word says, what He's done, then we begin to start being insensitive. The blessing, the benefit, the joy of what God has done in our life begins to wear off when you quit glorifying or placing the proper value on what God has done. Man, I wish I could re-preach that. That's a message that everybody in the world needs to hear. But I need to move on. I am going to illustrate this tonight. Let's turn over to Hebrews chapter 12, and let me just give you an example of this, then we'll move on. But Hebrews chapter 12, in verse 1, it says, Wherefore, laying aside our seeing, we also are compassed about with a great cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience... The race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Did you know that the word despising right here, according to Strong's Concordance, means to disesteem? In other words, this is the exact opposite of what we were talking about last night. We were talking about glorifying God, valuing what God has done in your life, did you know you not only need to put a good value on what God has done in your life, what He's spoken to you, but you also need to devalue anything else that comes against you. It's a two-edged sword. There's two ways to approach this. You can't only just say, Father, I value what you've done. Father, I glorify you. I magnify what you've done in my life. But you have to make a conscious effort to devalue or disesteem everything else in a comparative sense. Now, there's a lot of scriptures on this, but one of the classic ones is where Jesus said that unless you come to the Lord and hate your father and mother and brother and sister and your own life, you cannot be my disciple. Now, some people struggle with that, but if you look the same passage up in Matthew chapter 10, it's the exact same setting, same instance, but this time he says, unless you love me more than you love father or mother. He's not talking about that you hate people, but he's talking about a relative, a comparative thing. Did you know that you can actually take something that's good? You're supposed to love your wife. You're supposed to love your husband. You're supposed to love your children. You're supposed to honor your parents. But you know what? There needs to be this constant comparison, a comparative worth of things. 
And unless you put God so far above those things and in comparison hate everything else, including your own life, then I promise you that Satan sooner or later will use even good things that you value against you. Jesus here, it says that he disesteemed the shame, despised the shame. And notice it says that he took the joy that was before him. Now stop and think about this. This is talking about how he endured the cross. How did Jesus endure the cross? He put joy in front of him. Now what joy did Jesus have in the cross? Did you know most of us, if you were in that situation, and if you were faced with being crucified and the shame associated with it, and you've got to remember that you know, we deserve shame to a degree. Like the thieves that were crucified, they deserved what they were getting. But Jesus was totally sinless. Jesus had never known shame. He had never known guilt. Jesus was holy, holy, holy. And man, for him to accept shame, it was much worse for him than, it, than any of us could even possibly relate to. And in that situation, he set joy before him. Boy, that's radical. Some people think, well, what joy is there? You know, many people, they just can't see anything good in their situation. They think there isn't anything good. There's no positive side to anything. And the truth is, you can find something positive in any situation. Amen? I don't care if every time you see light at the end of the tunnel, it turns out to be another train. There's always something positive. Man, if they slit your throat with a knife, if it's a brand new knife, stainless steel blade, you ought to praise God, amen, <laughs> instead of being an old rusty thing. There's something positive in any situation. And yet we are masters at gravitating towards the negative, seeing the negative side. Here Jesus was facing the cross and for the joy set before him. Now, if Jesus could face the cross and still find joy and focus on that, did you know the word set before, I can't pronounce all the Greek word, but it basically is talking about that he looked with mentally, that he captured. The word is defining something that you capture these thoughts. It wasn't natural. I guarantee you when Jesus was headed into the cross, he didn't have a rush of joy, a rush of excitement, just natural feelings. It was effort for him, but he looked beyond the cross and he saw the joy. He saw the fact that this was going to please his father, that he was going to satisfy his father. He saw the fact that he would not just stay dead, but he would resurrect from the dead and that he would be seated with God the Father on the right hand. And you know what else he saw? He saw you and me. Man, Jesus did this because he so loved the world. He was able to look past the heartache. Boy, this is such a key. This is such a key to victory. If you ever do anything that ever amounts to anything, if you ever touch any person's life, if you ever succeed in any endeavor, I guarantee you there's going to be problems between you and that success. And the person who succeeds is a person who is able to look at those problems and hurts and pains, the cost, and they're able to look beyond that and actually glorify, value, magnify, esteem the answer instead of all of the things that it's going to cost along the way. That's what separates between victors and losers. 
Every millionaire that I've ever read about has gone bust more than one time. But you know what? They had something on the inside of them. They just knew that they knew that they knew there was a way to succeed. They kept this goal, this prize in front of them. And because of it, they were able to take things that destroyed other people. Then I've seen some people that, man, everything seemed to work for them. But you know what? They just had a defeated mentality and they were expecting something to fail. They were looking for it. And the first little problem, they just fall apart like a $2 suitcase. And then they talk about all these problems that come their way. And it's not these other things. You know what? You failed on the inside. Man, the Lord set the joy in front of him and he despised the shame. He disesteemed. We used also last night, Romans chapter 11, verse 13, that the word magnify is the same word that was translated glorify in Romans 1.21. Your thoughts either magnify or shrink everything. It's not what happens to you that's important. It's how you perceive it, how you process it. If you magnify negative things, then they become insurmountable. But you can also take huge things and disesteem them or shrink them. If Jesus could take the cross and the shame associated with the cross and disesteem it, despise it, then I can guarantee you, you can despise anything. You can reduce anything that comes against you to nothing. Some of you, I know, just aren't quite clicking with this. Because the truth is, the Scripture says, I'll bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Most of you know that Scripture, but the truth is you don't believe that works. You praise God up to a point. But when it gets past that, well, you can't expect me to praise God in this situation. In other words, the word doesn't really mean all times. It means all times except these times. Did you know there is nothing, if you really put the right glory, the right worth, the right value on God and supernatural things, nothing in this life, nothing in this life is to compare with it. You can disesteem, you can devaluate anything in this life so that nothing can bother you, nothing can steal your joy. You know, some of you think, but what if you're going through a divorce? What if it's terrible? What if your husband's cheating on what? You know, you can't rejoice in a situation like that. Matter of fact, psychology would tell you you're in denial. I was in Charlotte, North Carolina. Every year that I go there, I've been going there for, I think, 12, 15 years, something like that. And uh, every year when I go there, one of my partners has me into his business. And he has 30-something employees. He calls them in, sits them down, says, the clock is running, I'm paying you. You sit and listen to this man as long as he wants to talk. And I just go in and preach to him. And this has been about seven or eight years ago. I forget exactly. But anyway, the Lord really gave me something awesome for these people. I went in and shared. I went back into a break room, got to lead about 10 of these employees to the Lord. And this one lady came back. And she had tried to kill herself the day before. It slit her wrist, wound up in the hospital, And she was in a mess. And she was in her third marriage. Her husband was divorcing her. She was poor. She was an alcoholic. Had all kinds of problems. And anyway, she came back there to this room. And she says, I'm not a Christian like you and the boss here, but I know that prayer works. And I want you to pray for my marriage. And then she started crying. And she says, I'm going through my fourth divorce. And she says, if he divorces me, I won't be able to make it. And she just fell apart and started crying. And I looked at this woman and I said, now let me make sure I heard you right. I said, you aren't a Christian and you know you aren't a Christian. And she says, that's right. I said, if you were to die right now, you'd go directly to hell. 
And she said, that's right. And I said, and you want me to pray for your marriage and not pray for your salvation? <laughs> and she just looked at me and I said, did you know that after you've burned in hell for a thousand years, you won't give a rip whether you're ever married or not? <laughs> Who cares about your marriage? Boy, it's just like I slapped this woman. She quit crying. She looked at me and she says, you know, I need to get saved. And I said, I agree. And we prayed and she got born again and then we prayed for a marriage. Now, am I saying that marriage is unimportant? No, but I'm saying in comparison, see, some people will say, but if you're going through a divorce, you can't rejoice. Yes, you can. I mean, I believe God wants to bless your marriage. But you know what? If you put the right values and stuff down, it doesn't matter really. It doesn't matter if your marriage ever works out. It doesn't matter if you ever get healed. It doesn't matter if you ever prosper. Well, what could I focus on that would be good in the midst of a divorce? Well, if nothing else, you ought to say, Oh, thank you, Jesus, that the Scripture says, In heaven they don't marry nor are given in marriage. Amen. <laughs> thank you, Jesus. This is temporary. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. I'm not going to have to live forever with this person. Hallelujah. <laughs> You know what? You ought to go to rejoicing over that. You ought to go to rejoicing. Father, thank you that you'll never divorce me. Thank you you'll never leave me nor forsake me. You can rejoice if you're going through a divorce. You know what? If you're dying, it doesn't matter. I mean, who cares if you die? You're going to die anyway. Did you know that life is a terminal experience? We're all in different stages of dying. Even you young guys, you don't have as many years as you used to. Some people are, oh, that's terrible, that's sad. Well, if you get your head screwed on straight, Paul said, I'm in a straight between two. I have such a desire to go and to be with the Lord that I want to go, but I guess I'll stay here for you. Did you know if you get to where you value things properly, you can get to a place to where if they tell you you're going to die, what a deal. You're going to get to go to be with the Lord. You know, it's not over for us when we die. You go to be with the Lord. If you're valuing things properly, if the doctor tells you you're going to die, you just reach up and kiss him. Say, oh man, that's awesome. Awesome. I believe in healing, and so I believe God's going to heal me. But you know what? If he didn't, wouldn't it be awesome to just be in the presence of God? And those of you who say, well, I couldn't do that. You know why? Because you have misplaced values. You glorify this physical life, carnal things, more than you glorify other things. You know, your marriage is wonderful. Praise God for marriage. But you know what? If your marriage is so important that you couldn't make it without your mate, if your marriage was to go south and all of a sudden you'd say, I couldn't survive, you've got wrong values. Moses' wife left him, and you know what? He kept right on ticking. He kept right on doing what God told him to do. He never missed a lick. John Wesley, I've been to his house in London, and his wife used to come up while he was praying and kick him and hit him. <laughs> She hated God and hated him. And he lived with her for 40-something years and she hated God, beat him. She beat her husband and John Wesley just went on and changed the world for God. Some of you, well, I, my husband or my wife doesn't love me and appreciate me and it's stunting my growth. Pull your thumb out of your mouth, grow up. <laughs> Recognize that, man, there's something bigger than that. You could go on. <laughs> That's good preaching. <laughs> you know what? If Jesus could take what he was facing on the cross and deny it and disesteem it and get to where I don't count it as anything. Stripped naked, spit on, beard plucked out, 
thorns in his brow, ridiculed, saying, if you're the Christ, prophesy who it is that smites you. They blindfolded him and did that. They said, if you're the Christ, come down and bring us down from the cross. Mocked him. You know what? He disesteemed it. That didn't count. It didn't matter because he had something else he was focused on. Brothers and sisters, most of the things that we worry about are so insignificant. Some of you say, oh, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God about this. Oh, you won't either. When you get there and you know all things as you are known and you get everything in the right perspective and you see the glory and the awesomeness of God, you're going to say, oh, man, am I glad I didn't ask that stupid question. Man, am I glad I didn't give my little gripe out. I tell you what, when you're standing before God, you aren't going to be standing there holding him to account and say, why didn't you do this and why didn't you do that? I tell you what, if we get God's perspective, it'll change your life. It'll change your life. The reason things are so big to us is because God's so small. If you would exalt God, magnify God, value Him, and get to where God's so big, it just doesn't matter about all this other stuff. Nothing else is important. And you know what? When you get that attitude, you'll find out that everything in the natural will work better for you. You'll be healed easier. Your finances will work better. Your marriage will work better because you aren't codependent anymore upon that person. If they do something wrong, it doesn't affect your walk. You just keep right on walking with God. And you know what? That's the best thing you can do for your mate. My wife knows that I love God more than her. And I know that my wife loves God more than she loves me. Some people, that would bother you and hurt you. Man, it's a blessing to me because you know what? I disappoint my wife. I do things that are wrong. And if she gave me what I deserved, I'd be in trouble. But she's got a commitment to God that I know that God is never wrong. God is always the same. And God's the one that brought us together. And God wants our marriage to stay together. And I take great pleasure in the fact that she's more responsive to God than she is to me. The blessing. This, I could minister forever on this. I need to move on. But he set this joy before him. That allowed him to endure the cross. The reason some of you aren't enduring is because you don't have any joy set in front of you. You're just like a fly that gets on a painting. And you know, they report that a fly has compound eyes. They see a thousand images of everything. I don't know who decides this, <laughs> but that's what they say. <laughs> but just imagine this fly landing on a painting, and here's this blob of paint, and I mean he sees 2,000 blobs of this red color and says, this is ugly. But if you could fly back from that thing and get the whole thing in its perspective, you see that that little blob of paint makes it a masterpiece. It fits perfectly. But you can get so close to your problem that you can't see anything except your problem. You think that the whole world is falling apart because of your problem. You know what? You need to get focused on something other than what's going on right now. You need to look beyond that. You need to lift up your eyes and look somewhere else except down at your feet and see what's going on. That's what Jesus did. He looked beyond his problem. That's what allowed him to be able to endure. And he disesteemed. He despised the shame. He put no worth, no value on it whatsoever. Look in the 11th chapter, verse 26. Actually, let's back up and just read this about Moses. Verse 24, 11, 24. It says, By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy 
the pleasures of sin for a season. Esteeming. You know what the word esteeming means? That's what we've been talking about. The word glorify is defined by the word esteem. It means to value, prize. It's the exact opposite of disesteeming, despising. It says that Moses esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Moses esteemed suffering, rejection, persecution as being more valuable than all the treasures of Egypt. Most of you have seen the Ten Commandments. You've seen these shows that depict all of the opulence of Egypt. If you lived in that, if you were second in command, you know, secular history shows that Moses went out and defeated the Ethiopians. He was a general and had great, great, great position of authority. If you were put in that position, do you know it would be a struggle for you if God told you that this isn't really your people. This isn't where you belong. You go identify with the slaves. You know what? Many of us would struggle. Why? Because we would vow, oh God, look what I'd be giving up. Oh God, look. You know why you struggle? You know why it's a struggle for you sometimes to do things? Because of the value you place on things. The reason Moses was able to do it is because he said, man, suffering with Jesus, suffering with God, doing God's will and losing the throne, and if I have to go out into the wilderness for 40 years, that's worth more. That's more valuable than everything that is offered in the land of Egypt. That's the reason he was able to do it. You know, sometimes we look at people that make great sacrifice and we just say, how could they do it? They couldn't do it with your values. They would not be able to do it. You will do what you value, prize, respect the most. And so the problem isn't we know what's right to do, but the problem is our values are so skewed that we can't make the right decisions because we're losing so much. You know, it looked like Moses was losing all of this respect, authority, power, wealth. But see, he looked beyond that. He had respect. You know what the word respect in the last part of this verse means? The Strong's Concordance says that respect, it means that he looked away from everything but, is what that means. He looked away. In other words, he just refused to sit down and count and number all of the things he was giving up. He turned away from everything and got so single-minded on, look what God has promised me. And if Moses would have stayed where he was, did you know some of you that are historians might have known about him, but most of you in here would have never have heard of Moses. It looked like he was giving up a lot, but you know what? To choose God always, always, always works out to your best. Moses changed the course of the entire world. There isn't a Christian that hasn't heard the name of Moses. Most secular people have heard the name of Moses. Everybody's heard about Moses. Nobody would have heard about Moses in this day and age if he would have chosen the riches of Egypt. He made the better choice. It worked out better. The truth is it's always better for you to choose God's way. But the problem is that we say, but God, I've got to give up this and give up that. You know, when I first got to really serve in the Lord, I was a college dropout. I told you about that. When I got back from Vietnam, I started working a secular job, and I was working in a film department in the public school system. And here I was, a college dropout. But boy, you know what? I gave that everything I had. I developed films. 
edited films and delivered them to the schools. That's what I did. But you know what? I did it as under the Lord. Man, I gave them my best shot. I prayed over it anyway. It was awesome. And within a few months, the guy that was head over that whole department came to me and he says, you know what? He says, I really like you and like the work you do. And he says, I'm going to offer you a job that will give you, you can work here for 35 years. You got guaranteed retirement. He made me into a management position when I was 20 years old. Offered all that to me. The catch was, he says, you got to have a minimum of five years commitment. That's right when God had told me I was supposed to go into the ministry. And you know what? For a dropout, that was awesome. <laughs> it was a great opportunity. But I just decided, no way. I valued God's plan for my life. And at the time, I didn't know what it was, but I valued it more. You know, I now look back at that. And at the time, that was temptation because it looked valuable to me. I look back now and thank you, Jesus, that I didn't choose that job editing film. Man, what God's done in my life is so much greater than that. It's so much more awesome. I never would have got out of town if I'd have done that. I get to travel the world, minister to people. and th You know what? It's always better to choose God. You just need to change your value systems and disesteem everything else. Just get to where you look away from anything except God and say, God, you are all I want. Your will is all I need in my life. Look over in Philippians chapter 3. Man, I'm talking as fast as I can, but there's so much to share on this. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul was talking about all of his requirements, all of the things he had. And you know what? He wasn't talking about his failures. He wasn't talking about all of the things he did wrong. He was talking about all of his degrees, his education, his accomplishments, all of the great things. Paul was probably one of the most educated men of his day. He was the up-and-coming rabbi in the nation of Israel. He had all of these things going for him, but in verse 7 he says, What things were gained to me, those I counted lost. Did you know that the word count here, and also in verse 8 it says, Yea, doubtless I count all things, but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but done... Did you know that this word count is the exact same word that Moses used when it says he esteemed the persecution that came under serving God of greater riches than that? This is the same thing. This is talking about the same thing we've been talking about. Paul valued, he put a higher price on God and he put such a low price. He disesteemed everything else, all of his great education. And he says, I count them. That means he put a value on all of his accomplishments as dumb. That's just a polite way of saying something else. <laughs> this wasn't nice. You know what we do with our dung? We frame it and put it on the wall. <laughs> I'm not going to go there, but... You know what? If you were to count everything except the knowledge of Christ, dung, then you'd be like Paul. When they came and said, we're going to kill you. And he says, wonderful. Kill me. I get to go be with God. You know, that'd be the, your reaction. But you know why very few of us would respond that way? It's because we haven't counted everything but the knowledge of Christ dung. You really do value your reputation. You really do value all of the stuff that you've got. Now, I'm not saying that you don't value it, but I'm saying a comparative 
relative worth. You ought to put such a high value on God and God's power in your life that there isn't even a second's hesitation. Man, if somebody says, choose between life or God, no choice. Man, Jesus, you're it. Jesus, I'd die for you in a second. Some of you think you can't do that. Yes, you can. Wish I had about another 10 months to teach you on that. I've got a tape series out there entitled How to Prepare Your Heart. That goes right along with all this. Let's turn back to Romans chapter 1. Man, if I had time, I could show you how David did this exact same thing. You take any person you want to look at in the Word of God, and this example of what we've been talking about, about glorifying God, is a part of it. They put more value, more worth on what God said, more worth on God's plan for their life. They loved God more than they loved themselves. That's the key. You know what? When you get to where you value the things of God more than you value your things, when you value God more than you value your life, then the Christian life becomes so easy. It is not hard. People are all the time saying, well, God will make you go to the deepest corner of Africa. Most people believe God is going to do something that is going to hurt you, it's going to cost you. That's not the way it works at all. The Bible says in Psalms 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and He'll give you the desires of your heart. That doesn't mean that He'll just give you anything you want. It means that He will put His desires in your heart. Did you know when you are delighting yourself in the Lord, when you value and esteem Him more than anything else, you can do what you want to. Because your want-tos will change. I'm doing what I want to. This is what I want to do. That's awesome. If God sends you to the deepest, darkest corner of Africa, did you know if you had delighted yourself in the Lord, you wouldn't be happy anywhere else. You'll love it. You'll love it. Amen. Same thing with Africa or China or anywhere else. Amen. i got some friends in Mexico that have lived there for 20-something years and they can't even conceive moving back to the States. They love it down there. That's where God called them to be. We've just got such screwed up thinking on things. In Romans chapter 1, verse 21, there were four things listed. The first thing is that they quit glorifying God. The second thing is it says, this is Romans 1, 21, neither were thankful. Man, there's so much to say about all this. I've been meditating on these things for nearly two years, just this one verse of Scripture, and hard to condense it all down. You know, I used last night Romans eleven thirteen that when you magnify God, that's glorifying God. It's the exact same word translated in glorify in Romans one twenty one as Romans eleven thirteen that says magnify. So to magnify God is to glorify God. Look over in Psalms chapter sixty nine. This is Jesus speaking. It's a prophetic psalm. It's him speaking on the cross. If I had time I could show that to you, but anyway, this is Jesus speaking. Psalms chapter 69, verse 30, he says, I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. We were talking about last night that to glorify God means to magnify God. You've got to take what God says and you've got to magnify it. As you think on it, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more powerful in your life. So actually all of these things are interrelated. They're intertwined. To glorify God, you have to be thankful because when you are thanking God, it's magnifying God. I will magnify God with thanksgivings, what Psalm 69 verse 30 says. So did you know that to really magnify God and glorify Him, 
You've got to start being thankful for the things that God has done in your life. Did you know that unthankfulness is one of the blights of our generation? Matter of fact, look at this passage in 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is Paul talking to Timothy, and he's talking about the end times. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. Did you know that unthankful is listed right next to unholy? It's listed in the same list of things that goes along with blasphemers. It goes on to talk about lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Man, does that describe our society or what? It says here that one of the traits of the last times is that people will be unthankful. We have huge, huge, huge amounts of the population today that are unthankful. They don't remember the goodness of God. Did you know thankfulness, to be thankful involves at least two things, probably a lot more, but one of those things is that it means memory. You can't be thankful without remembering the good things that have been done for you. And it also involves humility. Did you know that a proud person doesn't believe anybody else has helped him do anything? He's accomplished everything on his own. He doesn't acknowledge the contribution or the help of anybody or anything else. I'm a self-made man or woman. And you know, this is just rampant today. Very few people remember Psalms chapter 103, I believe it's verse 2, says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. You know why God commanded you not to forget? Because you will forget if you don't make a decision to remember. This is the whole thing behind the Bible putting down observances such as the Passover and all of these things and making markers and remembrances. It was the reason for special feast days and all of these kind of things was to stir the people up through memory. Did you know your memory is one of the most powerful facilities that you have? I heard a story recently about a couple in Arizona that got married and just a week or two something after their marriage, they were driving, the woman was driving, the man was asleep in the back seat and they had a car wreck and the man survived relatively unhurt but the woman was supposed to die and anyway, she did pull through but she lost her memory. Not totally, but she lost the last 12 months. She could remember her parents, remember her name, remember everything about her but the last 12 months were gone and that was a period of time that she meant this man. They fell in love. They got married. And she went home with this guy because they said it was her husband. But she never remembered him. They tried to have the physical relationship and she just couldn't hack it. And finally they had to break up, move out, and start courting again. Because you know what? She could not maintain that relationship without her memory. If you'd stop and think about it, do you know if you couldn't remember, just think what it would do to your marriage. Think what it would do to your children. Think what it would do in this church situation. Think what it would do with your work and business. And if you don't remember things, you can't function without memory. And yet very few people remember the goodness of God. If you want to maintain the things that God does in your life, you are going to have to be one thankful person that goes back constantly and rehearses your victories. 
rehearses the things that God does in your life. You know, I meet people all of the time that when they get up in the morning, it's like every day is a brand new day that has no history. They get up in the morning and they aren't for sure whether they're going to still be serving God at night or not. It just depends on how things go during the day. They don't want to go out and disown God. They want to remain faithful, but they couldn't guarantee you that they're going to remain faithful. I mean, God forbid that they get put in a compromising situation because they just don't know for sure what they're going to do. Did you know my life is exactly opposite that? I can truthfully tell you that since 1968, every day of my life, I may have missed a few days, but if I have, I sure can't think of them. But nearly every day of my life, I've gone back to what God has done in my life. And man, I'm thankful. I am one thankful person. I thank God constantly. You know, I remember where I was when God touched my life. I remember that. I've never forgotten that. The Bible says in Psalms chapter 50, I believe it is, you that seek after righteousness, look to the rock from which you are hewn and to the hole of a pit from which you were digged. You have to be looking at God and see your position in Him, but at the same time, you have to remember the pit that you crawled out of. You need to remember those things. And you know what? If you remembered that, it would change the way you act. When I get up in the morning, if Satan was to put pressure on me to renounce God, you know what? I can't do it because I've got a history. I've got 31, I've actually got 41 years of being born again, but 31 years worth of seeking God with my whole heart, and it is interwoven into my thoughts and into my life. And man, if somebody came up and tried to get me to renounce the Lord or deny the Lord, I can't. It's just a part of me. I've got a history. But there are some people that get up in the morning and you've forgotten what God has done for you. Man, I remember where I was when God touched my life. It was so dramatic. It's so important what God has done that there's nothing that compares to that. There's nothing that could tempt me to ever turn away from God. Now, I believe that I'm capable of anything that anybody else is capable of. But I'm not capable of it tonight. Amen. Because my heart has stayed on God because I'm rehearsing my victories and I'm glorifying and thanking God. And you know what? I could probably do anything that anybody else could do, but I can't do it tonight. I don't know how long it'd take me. It'd take me six months, a year, two years, three years of denying the Lord to let these memories fade and for my love and my passion for God to fade. I eventually could do something, but I couldn't do it tonight. You can't make me commit adultery tonight. You can't make me turn on God tonight because I love God and I'm remembering what God has done. And those of you that are just driving down the street hoping that the devil doesn't put a temptation in your path because you don't know if you'll make it, one of the reasons you're like that is because you haven't glorified what God has already done and you aren't remembering and being thankful for the things He's already done. If you'd go back and rehearse your victories and be thankful... You know what? It would just do something powerful for it. Memory is a super, super powerful force. Matter of fact, Peter said it this way over in 2 Peter. Three different times he was talking about that he's going to soon die. And he says, I'm saying these things to you to stir up your pure minds through way of remembrance. Three times he says, I'm going to stir you up through remembrance. Man, if you want to get stirred up, go back and remember. Right. Some of you right now have had God save your bacon more than once. And you know what? If you would go back and just sit down and remember and spend some time to think about the goodness of God, you know what? It would totally change your outlook. Those of you that are saying, God, where are you? Do you love me? 
Just go back and think about the awesome things God's done for you. You know, I was in, um, oh, I forgot where it was, Florida someplace. But anyway, I was in Florida and I was sitting down with the pastors and we were just joking and we got to talking about stories. And you know how you are, you're telling these stories and experiences. I was talking about this time that I was flying in this little plane with this guy and, you know, it was so small, his shoulder touched the wind and my shoulder was touching the wind and they were touching in between. And this guy got nervous. We ran into a storm and it's a long story, but he freaked out. And that plane was going up and down like a roller coaster dropping a thousand feet at a time. We were going that direction, but we were pointed this direction. That plane was flying nearly sideways and it was a mess. And finally, this pilot, <laughs> he just goes, he throws his hands over his eyes and he goes, my God, we're going to die. We're going to die. And he just rolls up in a ball. And here I am in this plane. <laughs> so, man, I'm flying that plane with one hand and shaking him with the other and said, you get it together. I said, God didn't let me live through Vietnam to die in your plane. <laughs> and I had to fly that thing for an hour. And we flew over Alamogordo Rifle Range. And they, th they came on the radio and were going to shoot us down. I said, hey, the pilots freaked out. Have mercy on me. I'm getting out of here as fast as I can. And we started telling those stories. Just in August, I had a boulder that weighed over a ton roll over my arm and head. A boulder. It was about three foot tall like this, and it rolled over my arm and my head. And I got up and started shouting and screaming, in the name of Jesus, I'm healed. And about 30 seconds later, I quit running and looked, and everything worked. And praise God, I'm healed. <laughs> I erected a monument there. You know, this is what we're talking about, remembering. I did. I've got a monument there, and it says, August the 25th, 1999, Jesus saved my life when this rock rolled over my hand, arm, and head. And then it says, Psalms 116.6. That verse says, the Lord preserves the simple. Amen. I go, thank you, Jesus. i got a monument there, and every time I walk by that spot, I see that. We got to telling these stories, and you know what? I had over 30 stories of where I should have been dead, where I was picked off of a swimming pool after I was knocked out on the bottom at 11 o'clock at night, and somebody just happened to walk by and see me. I fell off a cliff, a thousand-foot cliff, and somebody caught me in midair. You know what? As I got to remembering, <laughs> I said, it just impacted me. I got to saying, God, you got a purpose for my life. God, you aren't through with me yet. Man, there's a reason for me being alive. And you know what? It was a year ago that we were doing that, a year ago in January, and I've been overwhelmed all year thinking about the goodness and the grace of God in my life. You know, many of you have had God save your life, and you've actually forgotten until I jogged your memory. If you were to sit down and go to rehearsing those victories and think about the goodness of God, God, look what you've done. You couldn't go through half of what God's done before you'd just have to be scraped off the ceiling. Oh, thank you, Jesus, you're so good. Your depression and discouragement will leave. Anybody who's depressed, I can guarantee you, you aren't thinking about what God has done for you. You're thinking about what the devil is doing to you. Instead of seeing the joy that's set before you and instead of saying, oh man, if I die, I'll go to be with the Lord. If I'm poor, well, I've got a mansion in heaven on streets of gold. Instead of those kind of things, you're looking at your situation. You cannot be depressed without getting your eyes off of Jesus and what he's done and focusing on your problems and forgetting your past and forgetting the goodness of your future that God's promised. You just forget everything. Man, it's like you just go totally brain dead and you focus only on this thing and you're depressed. 
I tell you what, there's plenty of depressing things if you want to be depressed. If you look at things properly, and if you are thankful and remember, there's just no reason to be discouraged. There isn't any reason to be discouraged. You get this attitude, and you know what? It doesn't matter what's going on outside. When I was in the sixth grade, I remember an experiment that our teacher did. He put a little one-gallon metal gas can on a Brunson burner and heated it got it hot, and then as soon as it got hot, he put the cap on real tight. And as the air cooled, of course, what it did, it formed a vacuum on the inside of that can. And then he put that can on his desk, and he just went about his business teaching. And I was sitting on the front row, and I remember looking at that can, and without anybody touching it, that thing, as it cooled and the vacuum formed, that can began to pop and crackle, and it just got crushed. It was like somebody took a sledgehammer to it. That thing fell on the ground and it just continued to get crushed. I was looking at it nobody touched it. All it was was normal atmospheric pressure crushed that can because there was nothing inside. It was a vacuum. And you know, as I was thinking about this message, the Lord says, we talk today about our great pressures. All of the stress that we go through. Kids are under so much stress today. And I don't mean to belittle this. I know all of you really value your problems. You put great value on them. And you get upset when I devalue your problems. But you know what? Kids are under different pressure today, but it's not great pressure. It's not any different than anybody else. What about the generation that grew up in World War II and saw their dads march off and never come back? That's pressure. Any of you ever hear of Thomas A. Crapper? He's the guy that invented the toilet. <laughs> it's true. I got his biography. I found it over in England. And I read about it. Thomas A. Crapper. There's a reason for him using these terminology. <laughs> but you know what? As I was reading that book, at 11 years of age, they gave him a day's supply of food and pointed him towards London, and at 11 years of age, he had to walk 360 miles, walk 360 miles to London, and he was on his own. Didn't have any relatives, didn't have a place to stay. At 11 years old, out on the street, make it or die, had to walk 360 miles to get to London. And as I read that, I was shocked thinking this couldn't be normal. And they said it was abnormal. Most kids of that day and age didn't leave home until they were 12. <laughs> we talk about our stress. Can you imagine your 11-year-old kid? Kick them out on the street with one day's supply of food and the clothes on their back, and they either make it or they die. I tell you what. We talk about stress. Well, I don't have a Sega Genesis, or I don't even know what's going on now. That may be out of date. Or I don't have the $200 shoes that light up when you walk. Or Oh, that's really pressure. You guys are really suffering for Jesus. Give me a break. I tell you what, it's not the pressure without, it's the vacuum within that are making people crushed today. That can, under normal circumstance, if it had any pressure on the inside, it would have been able to withstand normal atmospheric pressure. 
There's some of you that you just can't handle pressure in your marriage and you're talking about how bad it is and you love to put great value on these pressures and say, nobody knows the trouble I feel. Nobody knows my sorrow. We write songs about it so that nobody has as much trouble as I have. It makes you feel justified. You know, as long as the devil can make you feel that your situation, nobody else has ever had your situation, then it doesn't matter. I can stand up here and preach my heart out. I can tell you everything I know. And you're sitting there saying, well, yeah, that's true, but it won't work for me. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there is no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. Not just one or two other people have it. Everybody has the same problems. Same deal, different package, different wrapper, different bowl, same contents. The devil doesn't have different tricks. The moment you exempt yourself and say, I'm the only one, you've just exempted yourself from the answer. That's a lie of the devil. You don't have any pressure that's beyond God's ability. It's your vacuum within that's the problem. It's the fact that you aren't glorifying God and you aren't rehearsing your victories and you aren't thankful. You don't remember. You've lost your brain. Amen? You aren't using your mind. Man, how dumb can we get and still breathe? I'll tell you what, if you were to do what I was talking about, if you were to just to remember, oh God, I remember when you saved my life. God, I remember the night that I got born again. I remember the joy that you placed in my heart and what you spoke to me. God, I remember the things that you've done. You know, the scripture says to enter into his gates with thanksgiving. Psalms 100, verse 4, 3, 4. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name for the Lord is good. You know, even if you think that your situation is so bad, you've got to gripe and complain about it. Well, before you gripe, enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. For every five minutes you spend griping, spend ten minutes thanking him for the goodness. And you know what? If you would do that, by the time you got around to your gripe, it would have shrunk so small, you'd look at that thing and say, oh God, it's not a big deal. Amen. I've seen people that were healed of incurable diseases. I mean, miraculous healings. And then they have a cold and it drags on and their faith isn't working and they aren't getting healed and they come to me just like, well, if God can't heal me of this cold, I'm going to quit. And it's just all you can do to keep the spirit of slap from coming all over you to <laughs> say, hey, fella, don't you remember what God did? You've already been healed and... You just forget. You get everything out of perspective. Look over in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'll tell you, if you're listening, this will do you some good. It'll change your heart. We don't have any right to gripe. Nobody's going to stand before the Lord and say, God, it wasn't fair. Here's Paul. Here's the apostle Paul speaking. And in verse... 16, he says, for which cause we faint not. That's what we were talking about is how to maintain what God's doing, how to not grow weary, how to not faint, but how to maintain your enthusiasm, how to continue on. It says, for which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish. Now see, Paul's not saying that he doesn't have problems. He says, man, I'm perishing. He says, outwardly things are happening to me all the time, but oh, our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment. Paul here says, our light affliction. Some of you think, well, that's the reason I can't accept what you're saying because I got a heavy affliction. Paul didn't have any problems. His was just light affliction. 
So I just can't relate to what he's saying. I'm not going to take time tonight, but turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 sometime and read about his light affliction, beginning with verse 22. And read about how he was beaten with rods. Did you know when you're beaten with rods, they would hang you up and they would beat you and literally break the bones in your legs and feet. He was beaten with rods, I think, twice. He was beaten with whips many times. He was stoned and left for dead in Lystra. He was in prison. He was in, he was in the deep, he said, a night and a day. He had all of these things. He was hungry. He was thirsty. Those are his light afflictions. You know what? Paul's afflictions were more in quantity and, you know, I started to say quality, but it's not quality, but they were worse than yours and they were more abundant than yours. If Paul says his afflictions are light, then there isn't a person in here that's got a right to gripe. There's nobody in here that your problems even approach unto him. You know, this is the exact same logic that we started with in Hebrews chapter 12 after it says Jesus despised the shame and he sat down at the right hand of God. It says, consider him lest you be wearied and faint in your mind. You have not yet resisted unto blood striving against sin. What he's doing is making a comparison. He says, look at Jesus. Look what Jesus suffered for you. And until you suffer to the point that it cost you your life, then you hadn't got right to cry. That's what he's saying. If you're alive... You ought to be praising God. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Hallelujah. You ought to be thanking God instead of griping and complaining. There's nobody in here with a right to gripe. And I know some of you are saying, no, sir, that's wrong because you value things different than I do. You really value these problems. You value your hurts and pains. But the truth is, you had not got a right to gripe. God supplies bigger than your problem. Thank you for that thunderous silence. He says, our light affliction. He tells you two reasons why it's light. He says, number one, it's but for a moment. You know, if everything in your life was so bleak, the truth is most of you don't have a very good reference point. You're comparing yourself with the Joneses and with somebody else, and we're looking at television, which paints a totally, totally unrealistic picture of everything, and you're using that as your standard, and, and it creates dissatisfaction on the inside of it. But you know, the truth is that our reference point's all skewed. Some of you that are griping and complaining about how bad things are, I'd like to buy you a one-way ticket to some of the places I've been. And you know what? You would come back and kiss the ground and say, Oh God, I didn't have it bad. So you need to make sure you got things in the right perspective. And one of the things you need to do, I believe that everybody in here really has reason to be praising God. But if your situation was so bad that it really was pitiful, you know, all you got to do is think, man, it's just for a moment. <laughs> it's temporary. Man, if you're suffering physically, financially, emotionally, in marriage, whatever it is, it's just temporary. After you've been in eternity for a billion years, you'll look back at this and think, man, that wasn't so bad. But you know what? Putting things into the light of eternity will change the perspective. Not that big of a deal. Just temporary. That's awesome. See, this is the reason he said it was a light affliction because he says it's but for a moment. And then in the 18th verse he says, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. 
If you're depressed, discouraged, if you're losing your joy, if the things of God aren't fresh in your life, I guarantee you, you aren't looking at the things of God. You aren't valuing that, esteeming, magnifying that. Instead, you're looking at physical, natural things. You've valued, you put a greater price on that. You've magnified those, and that's where your discontentment comes from. Your depression isn't caused by your genes or hormones. It's not a chemical imbalance. Some of you say, don't you believe that there are chemical imbalances? Sure. It's a byproduct of wrong thinking. I don't doubt that there are chemical imbalances, and I don't doubt that you can take lithium and mellow out. We've got a Bible college student right now that went off his medication. He's manic depressant. And he went off of his medication, and he's flipped out. And he's headed to Mexico with us next week. And he's believing God he's healed. And I said, hey, brother, I believe you're healed too. And I said, but you know what? We aren't taking you to Mexico and let you flip out and run off and try and kill somebody in a foreign culture. You don't want to live in a Mexican prison. And so I said, we're going to believe God with you. And as long as you are fine, well, man, we're right with you. But you take that medicine. <laughs> I said, you aren't flipping out with us down there. I said, if you flip out, we're going to dope you up and get you to where you can't control yourself so we can drag you back here. But you know what? I don't believe that his chemical imbalance is causing his depression. That depression is caused by his wrong thinking, his negativism, looking at the wrong thing. And it causes chemical imbalance. Your emotions affect your body. They'll cause wrinkle on your face. They'll cause you to turn gray. Did you know Mary Queen of Scots turned gray overnight the night before she was beheaded in reaction to the fear that was in her life? Her hair turned snow white and she was redhead. I don't doubt that things happen. And doctors, they just find out what's going on in your body and then give you some way around it. But you know what? Your body's responding to you. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 6, to be carnally minded is death. Is death. Carnal mindedness affects your body, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. If you don't have life and peace, it's because of your carnal mind. Isaiah chapter 26 verse 3 says, The Lord will keep them in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon him. Peace is related to your thoughts. Your emotions are related to your thoughts, not your hormones, not your circumstances. If it was just your circumstances that dictated how you feel, then everybody who's in bad circumstances would always feel bad. But that's not so. There are some people that are in worse situations than you are, and yet they're rejoicing and praising God. I had a guy come into my office one time, one of my Bible college students, and he was crying. And I said, what's wrong with you now? He always had something wrong with I said, what's wrong with you now? And he says, I went to church yesterday and I was so hungry to hear the word of God. And he says, the devil put me right behind two women that were talking and laughing. And he says, it distracted me and the devil stole the word from me. And he just started crying. I said, give me a break. I just got off the phone with a guy who had lost his wife. She had just died, a preacher friend of mine. And I called to see how he was doing. And he said, oh man, God's awesome. He's glorifying, praising God, talking about the goodness of God. I just got off the phone with another guy whose wife was in the hospital and he was praying for her under terrible situation and he was just glorifying God. And here this guy comes in crying because two women in front of him talking church. I wanted to drop kick him right out the door. I said, why didn't you move? He said, oh, I never thought of that. I mean, that was really difficult. 
you know what? All of our problems, in comparison to God and His viewpoint, all of our problems are like that. You got problems? I guarantee you that God says He will laugh at them. He'll have them in derision. God isn't up there wringing His hands and saying, Oh, man, I really don't know what to do. Anybody got a suggestion? I guarantee you, God's not upset. He's not worried about this. Your problem, it makes Him laugh. It's nothing in comparison. You adopt His attitude. You begin to start seeing things. You know, if you just be thankful and remember the goodness of God... If you study the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt, like Psalms chapter 106 recounts this, and four times in that chapter it says they soon forgot His mighty works in the land of Egypt. And every time they forgot, it says they would do this and they'd be punished and fall into problems. You cannot fail if you don't forget all of the goodness of God. If you keep your mind stayed upon that. You know what? It's powerful force to remember God and to do everything so that, man, He's just constantly on your mind. It changed your life. Man, this is so simple. You've got to have somebody to help you to misunderstand it. We've had a lot of help misunderstanding. Brothers and sisters, it really is simple. The Lord didn't make it complicated. It's our lifestyle. It's our society. It's our value system. We have, we've elevated the things that God despises. Man, people... Hollywood just really grates on me because, man, they honor these people. They nearly bow down and kiss the ground that they walk on people. They write stories about They just are trying to delve into their life and find out everything because these are wonderful people. You know what? I don't believe God is impressed with any of them. I guarantee you the people that win the Academy Awards, I could just see God in heaven like that, you know, like, give me a break gag on this stuff, win an award for portraying adultery and murder and lying and stealing, and we give them great honor and recognition. God doesn't value things the way that we value it. And you say, oh, well, yeah, I know that. I guarantee you heaven doesn't shut down on Super Bowl Sunday so that everybody can watch it. It's not a big deal. There's nothing wrong with you watching television. There's nothing wrong with you watching the Super Bowl. But I tell you what, if it's so that, man, this excites you more than God, you got a problem. If it causes you to, well, I can't come to church because it's Super Bowl or it's, well, it's my team playing. you got serious, serious problems. It's not the television that's the problem. It's that value that's the problem. The fact that, man, watching somebody run a little ball up and down the field and kick it and throw it and hurt somebody else is more important to you than learning about the things of God. Something's wrong with your thinking. Amen? Man, our value systems are so screwed up. You can't react differently than your dominant thought. You will be like that. And if you know what? You're thinking about all these other things, it'll draw you that direction. You have to go out of your way. When everybody else is falling at these people's feet, and oh, they're so awesome, and look at their money, and look at their wealth, and oh, they're so beautiful. You know, God sees beauty different than we do. You know what? You have to go to an effort to say, God, I know that's not the way you view things. God, this isn't important to you. You know, in ministry, this is really important. Again, it goes back to this memory. I've seen people that would be dead today if I hadn't have prayed for them. People would be in hell today if I hadn't have prayed for them. 
I had a mother recently write me about one of her sons that was in prison who got born again and turned around through my tapes, and he's dead now, and she just wrote me to thank me. says, man, you'll never know how it changed his life. He was finally happy for the first time his life was changed around. Did you know what? Things like that all of a sudden can change your value to where, man, God, I really did something. I really am somebody special. But you know what? If you've got a memory, and if you remember that, man, when I was in high school, I was the flunky of everything. I was so intimidated, so bashful, I couldn't look at a person in the face and talk to them. I was terribly introverted. I had nothing going for me. I was going nowhere in a hurry. I couldn't talk. I was talking to Don Francisco recently over in Portugal, and he was telling me that he blocked stutters, what he called it. And one time they had him stand up in class and read a poem, and he spent 45 minutes and only got two sentences out in 45 minutes. And now this guy sings these songs and these words flow out of him. And he gets great acclaim and praise. But you know what? If he can remember, it's not him. It's God. You know what? It'll keep your feet on the ground. It'll keep you from reading your own press releases. Amen? I tell you what, this is great stuff I'm saying. This changed your life. This is awesome. I like it. I'm blessed. Amen? I am coming to an end, believe it or not. This is my last story, but Bob Nichols, who's a very good friend of mine, I was teaching on this at a minister's conference. Bob Nichols' daughter went into a coma, has been in a coma now for a year and a half. She wasn't supposed to live. I was there when the doctors came in and said, Brother Nichols, you know that she's dead. Take the tubes out. They did a tracheotomy, and I went in and saw her. She was normally 130 pounds. She was down to 60 she didn't look like a person. I never saw anything that looked that bad still be alive. Man, it took all the faith I had not to confess my unbelief in front of Bob and Joy. And I went in and saw her, and I was there when the doctors pressed him, and you know, he didn't get mad, he didn't blast him, he didn't stand up and confess, he just says, no, now that's not what we're believing for, and he just went right on. It was real good. But anyway, his daughter's been going through all of this. She's now... It's been 18 months. She's back home. She's actually standing up and walking on a walker, and they say she's still in a coma. She doesn't talk, but she will squeeze your hand. The lights are on. And anyway, they're seeing progress, but he's been struggling under this for 18 months. And yet I was preaching this message and talking about nobody has a right to gripe. Nobody. Man, God is good. And you know what? As I was preaching this, Bob stood up on the front row and he says, I've taken all I can take. I can't handle it anymore. Man, he went to praising God and running and jumping. And he said, oh, God, you're good. And he just, he went wild praising God. Ruined the whole sermon. <laughs> Lost the group. A man who suffered probably more than most of you in here have ever thought about was so thankful, so glorifying God, he just couldn't handle it. wound up falling on the floor, praising God for the goodness of God. And man, some of us are griping and complaining about the nothing problems that we got. I tell you what, we need to repent. We need to say, oh God, forgive me for my hard heart. Forgive me for looking and taking an average of the way everybody else is and trying to be just a little bit better than that. 
Man, we need to repent before God. God is a good God. God has blessed every one of us. We live in a nation that has blessings upon us. If you're born again, you got no reason to gripe or complain. And if you're lost, you got no reason to gripe or complain because God Almighty died to save you. God Almighty loves you. If you were the only person alive on the face of the earth, he would have come and died just for you. He didn't do it for billions of people. He did it just for you. And there's nothing that could ever make you have anything to gripe about since that's true. You know what? I believe in healing, prosperity, deliverance, all of these things. But man, if God never healed me, if I never had a thing, if nothing ever worked in this life, the fact that God Almighty loves me is enough to keep me shouting and praising God. The fact that the Lord redeemed me from hell and I've got a promise of living in a mansion and being with God eternally, there's going to be no more sorrow, no more crying. Man, I've got more than enough to praise God for. I've got no reason to gripe or complain. I'm blessed. You're blessed, whether you know it or not. All of us are blessed. It's just what you're valuing. What have you magnified? Where's your attention? Praise God, I'm doing everything I can to turn your attention away from the negative and put it on the goodness of God. God's a good God. The Lord's good to every one of you. Every one of you. Hallelujah. Amen. Isn't that good news? Amen. You know, I said that last story, but real quick. <laughs> I had a woman come up to me last night and talk about somebody they prayed for that died, and she says, I know that without it even being conscious, that is devalued, that revelation. It's hindered my faith, and it's hindered the faith of other people because we were confused. You know what? I've been through that. I prayed for four people who died before I saw the first one raised from the dead. There was this girl that I never proposed to her, but I was thinking about marrying her. We had talked a little bit about it. And anyway, her parents, they told the uh, Red Cross that we were engaged and I got an emergency leave from Vietnam and came home and I was with her when she died. She strangled to death on her own blood. And I was with her and we prayed for her for over two hours after she had died. And you know what? It affected us. I've been there. And every other person associated with this, every other person said it couldn't be God's will to heal. Because if anybody was going to be healed, it would have been Debbie. But you know what? I just, even though, man, I was confused and hurt and everything else, I said, God, your word says that by your stripes we are Amen. healed. Amen. The Lord gave her a special promise, Psalms 118, verse 18, that says, I will not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. And you know what? I walked out of that place saying, I don't understand it. But this was not God's will. This is not what God ordained. And to this day, those people that were associated with that think that I've gone off the deep end. But I had no answers. I didn't know what was going on. But I maintained for three and a half years before I found out why all that happened. Three and a half years. I had something that looked contrary to what God's Word said. But I kept saying, God, your Word says it, and I won't back off of it. It's true whether I can see it or not. And I just had to shelve it and go on with God and serve God. And she died of leukemia. The Lord showed me why it happened. And you know what? After I got the revelation, my next door neighbor in Lamar, Colorado had leukemia. And I went over and prayed for her. And she was healed of it and raised up. Praise God. 
And I've seen that truth now set a lot of people free from that. But the point I'm making is, you know what? I've been through things that I've done what I'm talking about. And I just kept saying, God, your word says, man through gritted teeth. And because of it, I'm still happy in Jesus today. And I'm still walking in victory. And I'm still seeing people heal. And you can do it too. Regardless of what your problem is, regardless of what the pressure is, you can believe God. And it's just as simple as putting worth, value, glorifying God, being thankful, remembering the goodness of God. That's the way you start. Amen?